G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 10 of This Week in Startups Australia. In Series 10, Twista has a singular focus. We're identifying and sharing the story of Australia's world-changing startups. The startups that when they go from zero to one really do change the world. And not just the startups, but the founders, the investors. Australia is stepping up with some of our brightest sparks working hard to change the world. And with the federal election just days away, we're going to take a look at some of the startup policies of each of the major parties and decide whether either of them deserve a tick on election day. We're running a ruler under parliament on This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Zendesk. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from the ground up with the Zendesk for Startups program. Learn more at zendesk.com slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by user testing. With user testing, you'll understand it from your customer's perspective. Get real-time feedback real fast. Put yourself in your customer's shoes. Visit usertesting.com slash twista for a free trial. User testing, real human insight. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Our Crowd. Our Crowd finds companies with the greatest growth potential and brings them to you. They believe in their deals and invest in them too. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash twista. Even though it has only been a few weeks, a lot has happened since our last Twista news special. There's an election on, maybe you noticed, and the Australian economy is now very clearly hitting inflationary headwinds. We had a 5.1 inflation rate in the last quarter. The RBA has just raised the cash rate to now 0.35%. It is expected to end the year somewhere around 2.5%. All of that leads to the latest federal election campaign, which is heading now into its final 10 days. So joining us as we explore these incredibly vital topics and how they might influence the choice that you're going to make at the ballot box are two very well-known and highly regarded VCs who have shared their wisdom in earlier new specials. Andrea Gardner is the founder and CEO of Jilix Ventures. Welcome back, Andrea. Wonderful to be here. Joining Andrea is one of the partners in Carthona Capital, Dean Durrell. Welcome back again, Dean. Nice to see you both. All right. Without further ado, let us jump in. Topic one, what's in it? for startups. So I have done a bit of research. I've been looking at election policies that are targeting the startups. Labor has, well, it's called the startup year policy. Let me quote, under this program, labor will offer income contingent loans to 2,000 final year students and recent graduates to support their participation in accelerator programs. These loans will provide students with the option of taking additional business-focused years working with an accelerator to develop their innovative startup ideas. Now, actually, 
This balloon had just been floated when the three of us did our last news special last year. We didn't really know anything about it. What do we reckon about the policy? Andrea? Well, from what I could read, I've read some um, stuff elsewhere that there seemed to be some suggestion it might be just a one-off for a one-year thing for a so-called start-up year. If it's just a one-off, that would be, uh, you know, just for one year, that would be disappointing. I mean, I think it would be, um, it'd be great to help the, uh, you know, the commercialisation of university technology. I think that's awesome. But I think they need there needs to be some work at a federal level on coming up with some sort of unified framework for um, basically getting the uh, IP out of the universities and into the startup. Some universities do that very well, and it's a really pretty, you know, a reasonable and straightforward process. Others make it really difficult, and I think a lot of it, in fact, more make it more difficult than it needs to be, I think. Because um, it can be set up to be a real win-win for both both the uh, startup and for the universities, I think. Um, and I think there's a big there's a lack in the in the policy. That, I mean, we're seeing a growing seed funding gap in Australia. We've got a you know we're pretty you know almost awash with VC capital, but it's you know and fund managers have bigger you know larger and larger amounts of capital under management. But with that comes a need to kind of write bigger checks and there's a move away, you know, capital is moving away from that seed stage and that gap's growing. So I think what they really need to do is do something meaningful to address that gap. Like, and they um, used to provide have some tax policies around that, right? Yep. But they, yep. I don't know if those have lapsed or it was so hard to actually qualify into that tax pool to get the concessional tax rate for seed. I remember because we had someone on the show who explained all of the Oh, the Essex. Yeah. Yeah, that, that became quite, quite difficult. But I suppose I'm thinking more of um, making it easier to get funds, you know, easier for uh, first fund managers to get an ESVCLP up and running. So I'm thinking of a fund of funds to match funding like they have now in Victoria. Okay. Dean, what do you reckon about the startup year? Look, it's something, and that's all we can say. <laughs> um, really, uh, is this should be one of 50, 100 policies from any political party that really wants to govern a modern nation like Australia. They're obviously reacting to, you know, Malcolm's um, demise, mentioning innovation once too often, uh, was the end of him. I reckon that Labor are playing that game of a straight bat where don't mention anything, let the coalition, you know, defeat themselves. So at least it's something, but it's a, it's a tiny, tiny little policy. And it's just been dangled out there as to say, look, we're mentioning a startup, but there's so many other things they should be doing. And to come back to Malcolm's policy, which was not necessarily flawed in its own, but it certainly in the messaging, it sounded like it was an inner city policy and it did not connect with innovation happening in the regions. And that, of course, doesn't work particularly within the coalition. And so it felt like the one thing that we've actually seen a lot of in the last, I don't know how many years, six years since he's been gone, is that there's now a lot more innovation happening in, say, Wagga or you know, in other places that are in the bush in this country. And is that an outcome? I guess, I guess we'll, we'll find out. All right. Can so, I, I'd yeah. like to say something about, I think that, I think, um, you know, I applaud Malcolm putting more emphasis on innovation in the startup sector, but I think 
I think he and his government really bungled the messaging in that instead of getting the message across to um, the populace that innovation and startups create are the creators of jobs, while they do destroy the less rewarding jobs, the more kind of jobs that can be more easily automated, they do create a lot of uh, much more interesting jobs. So I think they messed up that messaging because in, instead of realising that that this is a source of economic prosperity and job creation, I think there a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of people on the street are fearful of the destruction of jobs by technology. So I did do a proper search. The only thing I found from the coalition from the Liberals is their small business policy which basically touts the already announced policies, the instant asset write-off. We talked about that in the last news special. Lower taxes, more places for apprentices, which is great. I mean, I walked through TAFE Sydney on the way here and, you know, it's brimming with people who are learning trades, all of which is incredibly important, nothing specific to startups in that. So is that going to be a problem that one of the two major parties seems to have nothing directly to say to the startup community? And is that the shadow of Malcolm? I don't think it's a problem. They're signing their own death warrant. It's fine. You know, uh, <laughs> hopefully we won't have to put up with, with these guys. You know, they've com been completely absent. Um, I think everybody realizes that innovation and technology are absolutely at the core of what will remake Australia from digging things up mm. and growing things. Uh, the country needs to change. It needs to modernize. Uh, and it's just a... a a consequence of a, of a coalition that really struggles to get any meaningful policy through uh, that's long-term long -term looking. Um, and I, I do, I think it, it will really affect them come to compose. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just hope it does sign their death warrant for this election <laughs> because they're, I, I think they've been, it's just been the most concerning failure in terms the in terms of supporting innovation in the startup sector and and it is a critical economic imperative. And if you look at compare um, the Australian government to other governments around the world, New Zealand, the UK, you know, Singapore, you know, they've seen what's happened in Israel and what they're able to do to help supercharge their economy by getting right behind startups. And they're throwing an awful lot of resources into it. Um, and here it's being left to, to the, the sector itself. Yeah. Not, you know, there's not a lot of... Um, structural support. I mean, the R&D incentive is good. They need to make it a little bit gentler. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When we read between the lines here, and, you know, Dean, you observe well that Labour is basically trying to present no targetable surface, right? But when we read between the lines here, what should we be looking for, since they are being so quiet, when we're assessing the parties? What are the the weak signals that they're sending about their attitudes about startups and innovation? I think it's difficult to read between the lines uh, because there's not many lines there, right? Um, and that's natural. Like you say, the, the attack surface in politics is to try, you know, that shorten thought we'd won, um, tried to get legitimacy by putting policies out pre-polls because I'm going to win on this. No, that went wrong, clearly went wrong. So now Albanese and, and, and co are saying, let's, let's keep this stuff quiet. I think it's going to be difficult to tell. I think um, certainly, certainly when Ed Husick was, you know, shadow before, um, 
he certainly was much more engaged. And I think we just have to be hopeful. I, I don't think there is there are any runes really to, to read yet, but my perception is it can't be worse. Andrea? Completely agree that it couldn't be worse. I think the um, the disinterest of the of the uh, the coalition in innovation and the startup sector is is just woeful. It's just so desperately disappointing, particularly if you think about the future um, for our kids. Mm. I think um, at least Labor has a few bits and pieces, and um, which is better than nothing. But they don't fill me with confidence either. But at least they've actually thought about it and uh, I think they've promised to try and create, um, is it 20,000 new places at universities? And I think that is, um, that's finally something that could be really meaningful because, you know, we have this huge problem with um, recruiting technical people, developers and filling those jobs. So we're creating them at a rate of knots, but every single company in our portfolio is has got lots and lots of jobs and they can't fill them. And you're getting to exactly what the elephant in the room is. And we will come to that elephant and give it a good circling when we return. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. The fastest growing companies have great products and great customer service. You build the great product and Zendesk will help you build great customer experiences that make your customers come back, just like Jason Calacanis. Jason has a very public obsession with amazing customer service and relies on Zendesk for his launch investment syndicate. Jason's limited partners use Zendesk to reach out to him about each of his deals. Zendesk also handles inbound inquiries from startups looking for investors. Zendesk helps Jason provide the customer service he demands. Apply for the Zendesk for Startups program to get their industry-leading customer service software free for six months. You'll also get access to Zendesk's community of startup founders and partners, plus dedicated onboarding guidance and support. Zendesk has everything you need to deliver the amazing customer experiences that will make your product a success. To learn more about Zendesk for Startups, visit zendesk.com slash twista. And we're back on Twista's pre-election news special with Gilix Ventures' Andrea Gardner and Carthona Capital's Dean Durrell. All right, topic two, which, Andrea, you were just talking about. Where are the workers going to come from? Because this is front of mind for everyone in tech. Both of you have a lot of placements with a lot of companies. Have any of those companies been able to find enough workers in the last year? One. <laughs> <laughs> And we've got 30 portfolio companies, right. um, and it is a deep tech company, but what they're doing is just so super-duper exciting. They've managed to um, recruit, I think, ahead of a lot of others, and uh, Kathana is a co-investor in that company. Um, but not, it hasn't been easy, uh, and they, you know, they're, they're still recruiting. Um, the others have really – everyone's always struggling, especially for tech people, and – you know, I think on the last podcast I was saying at that time we had, I think we had 400 places at universities in computer science. 
for the whole of the country and something like 300 of them, or I cannot actually remember the proportion of them, but it was vastly more than... Um, the, than half were taken up by overseas students that couldn't get visas to stay here. So no wonder we have this structural problem in providing, um, you know, in providing a pipeline of technical, you know, of de software developers here. And so, you know, we, Labor has announced a policy to reach 1.2 million tech jobs by 2030, which sounds great. Really, it's 340,000 more jobs over eight years. So that's sort of 40-ish thousand new tech jobs a year, which is not bad. That's a significant portion of the workforce. But I think actually aren't we going to need a lot more bodies than that over that period For of time? Sure. For, for sure. For sure. And even finding the bodies for the 340,000 jobs is not going to be easy. It's As Andrea says, we've got this problem. You know, if you think about it as a funnel, the number of people that are interested in STEM through high school is incredibly low still, on a, certainly on a national and international comparison. Uh, the number of people that at the places at university, the people that want to do it, it's small. The, the, the funnel is really, really small. And we shut immigration off essentially for two years. But we also have a massive, you know, thinking back a bit to politics as well, housing affordability, when someone from overseas looks to come here Absolutely. and they look at how much for a house, there must be a naught added here, or how much to rent. Mm -hmm. We're talking about rents going up 40% in places. People are saying, you know what, I can be remote. I can work for anyone. If a talented person can work anywhere. For us, we've got one company that's done well in hiring, that's Indebted, that went to the four-day week, is, is really, really invested in making sure that uh, it's a fabulous um, place to work. They won the AFR best place to work. But that takes a lot of effort, and that's a really big move. It's been successful for them, but everyone else, it's going to get worse. Like, you know, deep tech is coming to every company, and that's not just what we regard as tech companies and, and young companies. The mm. biggest companies uh, in in the country need to modernise. They recognise they need thousands of workers. Yep. Where are they coming from? Absolutely. And I, th I think that, I think, you know, we do have this structural problem in terms of our pipeline of, of tech people. And sure, it's a good idea to um, create more jobs at universities. But I think, I think the government should think a bit more laterally about it. And there's some pretty kind of inexpensive quick fixes, I think. So, for example, um, Adelaide now has 42. And that, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but it's, um, it's a franchise from a program that was built initially in Paris. It's sort of globalising. And it's and the reason I know about it is my, my son is um, enrolled to, to go over there and do that next week. But it provides, in about two years, they train people up um, to be software, de full stack for software developers, and they have a 100% um, employment rate at a minimum of 100,000. So that's, a, you know, for a, a young person out of school, that's a pretty awesome, awesome route, I think, rather, you know, if you compare it to a traditional four-year degree at a university. Yeah, and I mean, and you can compare it to someone who's also a tradie who's learning how to be an electrician or a plumber, right, that, again, they're going to work for a couple of years as an apprentice and then they're going to be making similar amounts of money. So it actually is very attractive, I think, to a young person to go, okay, I can basically go apprentice for a couple of years, learn a trade, and then go out and make a really good living at it. All right. 
can those programs scale because of policy or are we sort of going to be relying on – I mean is that is that the South Australian state government who initiated that program? No, I, it's, I, I, I think the state, South Australian state government um, – don't quote me on this but I think they've provided some financial support and I think they're considering coming to Melbourne or Sydney – uh, but they'll be looking for some support for that. That's my understanding. I I'm, don't want to speak on their behalf because I don't know them. It's all a bit secondhand from my son. Um, but, you know, that could be really game-changing because it would get people out into the market in two years instead of four years um, and they'd be full-stack developers. So, I, yeah, I think it could be really a, really a quick and easy way to start getting more developers back out in the market. Dean, what else should we be thinking of when we think about accelerating or amplifying the pipeline to get bodies in if it's policy or or other procedures? I think immigration is definitely a place to look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the world is in turmoil. At the yeah. moment, uh, there's some highly, highly skilled people. In Ukraine, for certainly. Sure, for yeah. sure. We should be welcoming with open arms Anyone that can prove a certain level of skill or the ability to be trained up, yeah. we should be op- open arms to those. It's it, humanitarian reasons alone, but also it's, it's a win-win in that economically we will also do well. Absolutely. So I think immigration, number one, number one we need to focus on. I mean, you could almost, you put these edges together, you could connect an immigration pipeline into a 42 program and say, okay, you know, you're going to have a, a visa for two years and we're going to put you through this program. And if you do well, you're going to have a job and you're going to be on a pathway to citizenship. And Bob's your uncle at that point, right? Yeah. It, I think it, it's a competitive process to get into the program. All right. So now here, here comes the fun part. I'm going to give you both magic wands. And I want you, with your magic wand, to create the best possible policies for startups. So you've got a blank piece of paper. So where would you start, Andrea? What policies would you create? Well, first of all, I'd keep the R&D tax benefits, but I'd make it simpler, easier to navigate and call off the ATO attack dogs. Um, Immigration, I think, is the next one. Make it easier to – for for the – the people with the skill set that we need to um, to come to Australia. We have a structural problem with housing costs. I don't know how we can sort that out. I don't think any political party's got the um, got the the will to do something about the um, negative gearing, which I think would help. Uh, fund of funds, providing match funding for a fund, uh, you know, for for funds that are going to invest in a very early stage. And um, I think they should just make sure that they keep, whoever's in government needs to keep reviewing the, um, the tech council reports because, you know, that's, that's usually a very well-researched and informative annual report. Um, and I think it should be key to informing policy decisions. So almost that the minister's office, the relevant minister's office, should prepare some sort of response to the report when it gets released. It's probably not I a bad way to I think that would be excellent. Yeah. Or, or that it gets tabled in Senate estimates. Even better. Right. <laughs> All right. Dean? Well, I wouldn't mind some principle-led politicians, you know, some people that are not wondering about the next poll, um, trying to react to very short-term things. In terms of policies, I think we need – it's pretty simple. Most things come down to pretty simple things. We need to modernise the country and the economy. So that's – Let's, let's encourage more innovation and more startups. 
How does that happen? Well, we need some good examples, and we're starting to get that of people um, you know, selling companies for a lot of money and that money getting reinvested. I actually think Andrea's point about a fund of funds, about match funding, is really, really important. I think governments can, A, stop attacking the superannuation industry and and not having this ideological war um, and, and encouraging policy uh, that super funds can invest more uh, into innovation and startups. That, that would be a start. But again, we need, we need the bodies because if you get money into startups and they can't find the right people onshore, it's very, very easy to, to just dial up you know, online and find someone that can do the work for you overseas. Maybe not, Absolutely. Maybe not in Eastern Europe so much anymore, but those people are displaced. So, yeah, I think uh, immigration, let's make sure that people are encouraged to come here for the right reason. And, uh, and that maybe, if I can add one, to bring a consciousness to government that there's a global war for talent. Yes. Right? And that that's exactly how we treat it. And if we don't have a national policy, by default, we lose that war. All right, you're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, including Australia, where startups brought in a record $4.2 billion in investments. Our crowd identifies those companies with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more, our crowd identifies the innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community. Sophisticated investors have already invested over $2 billion in growing tech companies. And our crowd has skin in the game. They invest in their portfolio companies and use their extensive networks to help those startups succeed. As a sophisticated investor, you can truly diversify your portfolio with early investments in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest-growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash twista. Individual results may vary. There's no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. Invest wisely. We're back on this twist and news special with Dean Durrell of Carthona Capital and Andrea Gardner of Gilix Ventures. Okay, topic four. And this, when we recorded our last news special, had happened just that morning. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it now because that day, Fast had spectacularly imploded, had just gone and completely closed its doors out of the blue. And there was a great article on The Scoop, which we'll put on the website, which really examined why. I'm going to give you some quotes from that. All right, quote, Fast did less than 300K worth of sales and below 6K on revenue most days between January 22 and April 22, right? In the span of six days, Fast went from being valued at close to $500 million to shutting down all operations. Even as the company was burning through its funds at an alarming pace, employees did not notice major red flags. In fact, the lavish perks, high offers, and sign-on bonuses, and lavish company events 
suggested the opposite. All right. What mistakes were made here? Or maybe we just want to sort of start with some of them. What can other startups learn, Andrea? Well, look, I think think the key mistake was, you know, they they were burning through capital. Um, they were spending a lot of money on engineers and, um, you know, their revenue wasn't, it just wasn't there. Yeah. To, and rather than do something about it and look, look at what it was, they, they just kind of, they just covered it all up. It was a bit of a cover-up even to their own employees. And basically and, bet on a Series C that then didn't happen because exactly. the revenue wasn't there to justify a Series C. So it was C. all about the next raise and all that sort of stuff rather than building the fundamentals of a good business. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, some of the engineers were even saying, look, we've got all these small customers and they're requiring a lot of engineering support why aren't we targeting bigger customers, you know, just so that the CAC is more reasonable? So that some of those key metrics were obviously being ignored. I think not just CAC, but things like revenue, they just ignored that. Apparently, you know, I saw a little graph of their hockey stick and the hockey stick was recruitment, Employees, for goodness not sake. not revenue, yes. Yeah. Like, Oops. That is, you know, <laughs> so it's some pretty, you know, pretty, pretty basic things. So, Burning through, burning through investors' cash, being pretty irresponsible about it, I think, too, judging from some of the things that I uh, read about, um, and not getting the best value they could out of that cash. And I, I suppose another part of it was also, um, you know, they raised it to high valuation as well, um, and they weren't able to generate the growth to kind of, um, you know, justify the the Series C round at, at at you know at the big at a big evaluation, so it's pr there are pretty fundamental problems there, um, and I think the biggest red flag was the lack of transparency. Dean, I'm keen not to join the pylon too fast. We're an inherent business that takes risk, mm. that tries to build things, mm. um, that tends to need to hire people early. Sure, there's been a ton of mistakes, but in a macro sense. Someone tried, a young Aussie person tried, went to the US, tried, and they failed. Look, you know what? That happens, and that would have been a really, really tough experience. Yes. Euphoric at the start, and often business success is, is confused with raising money, which is dilution and hiring people. But you know what? I, I feel sympathetic. I often do. You know, as VCs, we're going to have plenty of our businesses go bust. Mm. Our entrepreneurs are going to feel really bad about it. You know, as investors, we also tend to feel bad about losing money, even though we know that we're going to need to do some of that to, to have a successful portfolio. I just think uh, it's a sign of the times. Um, we're back to more normal times. The last six months of last year were extraordinary. They were, you know, my whole career – I don't think I've seen anything like it. I think even like dot com, yeah, back to dot com. Okay, you yes. know that that was which, which the was mania, right? That was exactly. a, that was mania. No one really knew what this thing was. Yeah, we do know what technology is like now, and and what a successful company looks like. It's just that you know there there was an excess, there's an excess, and certainly even in Australia there was excess last year, and. Um, this is just a consequence of that. It's, it's reversion to mean, and that's what happens. But I'm, I'm reluctant to, to blame individuals because I think, um, you know, it's a risky game and someone's put themselves out there to do it. All right. I mean, you know, you just alluded to the fact that the environment 
has rapidly changed, right? That we've, we've taken the chill pill in a way and that this showed up very visibly in uh, Canva's valuation because Canva was sort of sitting at around a $55 billion valuation, which I don't even know if the founders took that seriously, but that's what, you know, on the last raise. And Templeton, Franklin Templeton's Growth Opportunity Fund took that valuation and slashed it by one-third. And I think we're used to this idea that a unicorn's valuation in Australia, particularly if it's one of the biggest companies that Australia's produced in its startup scene, would just increase and increase and increase, particularly when it's big enough to be basically counted among the ASX 20 now. So what is that telling us? I mean, is it telling us something about Canvas? Is it telling us something about the market? Is it telling us something about Franklin Templeton? Because another one of their funds did not mark Canva down. So even internally, they can't quite agree. What is this telling us about the changing world that we might be in that you've just alluded to? Well, I think there's quite a lot of unknowns here. Is their valuation down? I don't know. Just because one investor, relatively small investor, marked down one of their funds, is that the basis for a markdown? I don't know. All of us, us three sat here, we don't know the internal metrics of that business. There are some very, very smart people that have held, apparently, apparently held the valuation constant. They have the metrics, right? It's, it's I'm sure it's under uh, scrutiny, internally and externally. Um, look, the, 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 the listed market is down. That's right. But listed market also rallied a huge amount. Remember yes. the first trillion dollar company? Well, well, we went through two trillion pretty quickly, right? <laughs> yes. So that's the way of the world. You know, we're in volatility is our is our friend as investors and innovators and and VCs. There's going to be some volatility, and you know, there's been a tech sell off for sure. But actually, Canva, I'd say. I don't know. It's There's, not getting smaller. No, it's no, growing. No. It's, it's a fabulous, fabulous yeah. company. So, who knows if their metrics have got miles better? Um, that, that's for that's for internal, you know, that's for in, internal processes to work out. And I, I, I think we should trust the internal processes of the people involved. Andrea, I, I agree. Actually, I think we really don't have the inside information on it. We should. I think we should trust the people involved. I think they're trustworthy people, actually. Um, and in terms of, you know, the potential for a trickle-down effect, mm. I think it's interesting because it's been interesting to watch, you know, valuations go up as, you know, VC capital really flooded the, the markets in the US and then there was a little bit of follow-on in Australia and I think there's been more recent downward pressure on valuations. Um, as early as we invest, I think it'll take a while to get there is a little bit of downward pressure, I think, on valuations at the moment. It's not major, but I think it would be healthy because I've seen, you know, valuations in the last six years for a pre-revenue company that's a couple of founders and a pre-revenue company or very, very early revenue company, you know, two and a half or three million. Remember the Berkus method of, you know, half a million, about two and a half was your max valuation, you know, half a million for the quality of the founders of the market, blah, blah. And now it's about doubled that in a few years with no, no underlying basis for it, other than I think it's it's an asset class that people are more interested in because they're seeing the potential of the, you know, the growth of the unicorns in Australia. So I think some um, downward 
pressure on those early stage valuations, especially at that really early sort of angel stage, would be really helpful. And the reason I think it would be really helpful is because when if you if you invest if, if founders, for example, take investment at a six you know say five million dollar valuation and there's no revenue um, and there's an expectation you know, a kind of rule of thumb expectation of doubling the valuation in the next round in 12 or 18 months, then they've got it, instead of going from the revenue that would support, the mul- revenue multiple that would support a, a 5x to a 10x valuation uplift, they've really got to go from zero revenue to 10x because in the beginning that valuation is kind of based on what you can sell it for really and emotions drive a lot of angel investors Um but when you get to a 10 million valuation, it's going to be based on metrics and revenue and kind of some cold, hard numbers. Um, and, you know, that's what that's my little valuation coffin speech because I think it builds in a lot of risk for the founders and therefore the investors. So, in fact, underprice when you're starting because that gives you more flexibility later on. Yeah, and obviously you need to balance that with dilution. You want the founders to be sufficiently incentivized. So no, I don't think underpricing is the answer uh, because you really do want your your founders to be fully incentivized. But really inflated valuations, I think, builds in a lot of risk that's, that, that's not necessary. All right. I want to come and conclude on a topic that is the big theme for Series 10. We're calling it the world-changing theme. These are the startups that when they go from zero to one, change the world for the better. So if each of you can tell us about a startup in your own portfolio of investments that fits that bill, Dean, do you want to start off? Sure. I've got a, a very clear candidate. It's a business called Path Zero. It's to do with... Um, Carbon accounting at the, at the absolute core is really digging down into models for every single company right the way down to the smallest startup. Um, most of our startups are now actually um, clients of Path Zero because we want to monitor their carbon emissions and because we've got institutional investors to be able to, to feed that all the way up. Um, so, so this helps them be ESG compliant as ab- well. Absolutely. And what's happening is LPs are now starting to become very, very vigilant and actually want to have the data to understand the underlying portfolio. Uh, at the moment, it's halfway house, but I'm sure within a year or two, every major institutional investor around the world wants to press a button and understand what are my carbon emissions, not necessarily dynamically, but certainly over a reasonable period of time. So they've built this uh, incredible tech platform with strong models and recognizing that there's models that are needed in every different industry in in every different part of the world to be able to report that to be able to um to to actually be able to take action to reduce emissions because that's incredibly important and the emissions that can't be to be able to be offset um it's a business that's growing incredibly fast and we've internally at carthona we've thought about this a lot in the past that the altruistic side of 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 esg one day would collide with good business. It's absolutely sure that in the last year that has absolutely happened. Uh, it's a huge area to actually do good for the, the world socially and also make money. Uh, and for us, that's that's really been evidenced by our investment in Pulsar, which we'll, 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 we'll be following on um, relatively soon. Andrea? Quantum brilliance. Uh, basically... Um, most of the development of quantum computing at the moment relies on getting the temperature down to absolute zero and these humongous cryogenics, these massive, massive 
pieces of hardware um, that are, you know, three to five million dollars each. So they were kind of looking, I suppose, at, at a very high level replacing su supercomputers. But what Quantum Brilliance um, has done with its uh, diamond substrate technology, it it's, doesn't need the cryogenics. So they're working on um, building so a... room temperature quantum computers. Room temperature quantum computers. And what that means is at the moment they're working on uh, getting a fully functional quantum processor down to the size of an iPad that you can just plug into your laptop. And then now, oh since, my God. since our first <laughs> investment, they're now aiming for it being like the size of a thumb drive. Um, so the main sequence is also an investor, isn't it? Yeah. 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 They, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a pretty exciting <laughs> we got in, we got in, uh, we were one of the first, I think we were in that very first round. So we we're quite excited about this. And that's very deep tech. That's like almost as deep tech as it gets, right? Because it's device physics and it's quantum physics. Oh, yeah, it's, yes, yes, it's very, very deep tech. Um, but it's, uh, it's really exciting and it will change the world. It will make such a huge, I think it will be a quantum leap, excuse the pun, of, uh, you know, from, from uh, you know, the, the huge... Uh, you know, mainframe computer that took up an entire multi-storey building the size of this one uh, compared to, you know, that has less, when I was at university to, you know, that had less power than our phones do now. Andrea, Dean, thank you so much for joining us on this Twister News special. That was a delight. Thank you. Experience what your customer experiences with user testing. Whether you're launching a new product, prototype, or marketing campaign, you'll get video feedback straight from the people who you want to reach most. The user testing human insight platform lets you understand it all from their perspective, and it allows you to target your exact audience, ask any question or request to perform tasks, and most valuably, get a window into their world. Unlike focus groups, which can take weeks or even months to deliver results with user testing, you get to see real actions and hear real opinions really fast, in real time, at the speed business demands. Very quickly, you get insights into what's working and what's not, so you can adjust your message, refine your UI, and understand exactly how people are responding to and interacting with your product, service, or brand. The result? You feel what your customer feels, so you can build the best experience imaginable. For a free trial, visit usertesting.com slash twista. User testing, real human insight. Just a reminder to think carefully about your vote before you cast it. Remember that the next three years will be vital to Australia, its future, and its startup community. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Zendesk, Our Crowd, and User Testing. More big thanks to Andrea Gardner and Dean Durrell for making time to come onto our show. And again, additional thanks to Mari Herps and Bluebell Ray at UTS Startups. They generously offered us the space where we recorded this episode. The show was written and produced by Mark Pesci and beautifully mixed by Luke Station. Come visit our website at thisweekinstartups.au. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, and all the links to all the stories. So check it out at thisweekinstartups.au. 
Now, we'll be back in a fortnight finishing up our incredible interview with Canva co-founder and chief product officer Cameron Adams, and we'll be dipping our toe into some world-changing ideas. That's coming up in a fortnight. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.